0: You need more than just technology to make a lasting change in this world, and that's why Neon One offers a nonprofit platform that's designed to grow with you, providing software and resources that help nonprofit professionals make their connections that matter—connections with their peers, connections with their supporters, and connections with their mission. Learn how Neon One makes it easy to design amazing generosity experiences by visiting neonone.com/slash-we-are-for-good.
1: We're nonprofit professionals, philanthropists, world changers, and rabid fans who are striving to bring a little more goodness into the world.
0: So let's get started. Becky, what's happening?
1: It's a good day around here. We have somebody on the podcast we have been wanting to befriend and learn from Seriously. for
0: months. I was thinking of that song, like, we knew you, lo- we loved you before we met you kind of vibes because we're, <laughs> oh me- we're talking with Mina. We've been following her in her work and like, she's just as warm and just as incredible as we suspected from following her work. But I am hugely excited to introduce everybody to Mina Doss today. She is all about people. She's all about threading the humanity into data, something that's often not linked together. And she is going to walk with us very gently because you know we need a helping hand when we're talking about data. But we're going to lean into this discussion today about how can we center equity and inclusion? How can we center these community centric principles in our work and just how we can do that really ethically at the same time? And so let me tell you a little bit about Mina. She is the founder and data consultant, she's a trainer. She's a data ethicist, which is an incredible thing that I want you to unpack with us. All in her consulting practice called Namast Data. Gotta be like the best name ever. She specializes in designing and teaching equitable researching tools and analyzing engagement. And she just appreciates spending time outside of her work as a mentor to immigrants. So you are just like an incredible human being, my friend. Um, She's going to walk us through a little bit of her recent projects. But let me just say this. If you're not following Mina on LinkedIn... Stop what you're doing. Actually, you can multitask when you're doing this. (laughs) Find her because she's going to just provide this buoy to your feed of just seeing people and recognizing people and making you feel really taken care of in your journey and learning a lot of cool stuff along the way too. So Mina, get in this house. We're so delighted to have you on the podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so glad this is being recorded. This is going to be official so I can like, you know, take all these good things you both said about me (laughs) for my rainy days. I love it. Thank you so much for
0: having me. Well, we mean them, And we're just excited to hear more of your story too. I mean, like Becky said, we've followed you for a little bit of time now and just love the work that you're leaning into, but kind of back us up. Like before you got into this work, what led you into this really interesting journey and tell us about growing up and all those things.
2: Absolutely. So I usually start with my story from where I grew up and I grew up in India. That's where I'm from. I'm a first generation immigrant from there. I moved about six years ago to States and from States to Canada. And in India, my dad works in bank. I grew up in a middle income household um, and a family of four. I have a brother and it was lovely. And But we moved a lot. We moved every city almost. That is a lot. Every four years, so I by the time I was twenty, I had moved to like ten cities in twenty different states. It was a lot. It was a lot, and we didn't even have Facebook or phones back then. So, only connection was if you are in person right now making friends, <laughs> because there was no other way in keeping connections other than to write letters and sending it by pigeon. And I did neither. So, the yeah, the way it happened was I started to learn about different people, moving from city to city, state to state, and by the time I was 20, and I have always been a tech person, I have finished my first um, master's program about 16 years ago and got into my first job as a tech person with people, and uh, I started my own school, and my school was for sexual assault um, victims and ex-incarcerated people. I um, I got to know India have a lot of, has a lot of people and there is something that I felt like every person has potential and for one reason or other, we don't get to our potential. And I only wanted to show them that they still have a lot to do. And it was my way of making sure to include them in the things that I have learned. So I started to teach computers, the basic stuff, um, just giving them a different kind of a purpose a different kind of a reason to connect with each other. Um, And that really helped me. But at some point, I realized after running that school for two years and almost having my own little community of 100 people, I realized that I don't earn enough to sustain that school. And so the primary reason of moving out of India to the States was to learn more, earn more, and hopefully go back and restart my school, which is still a dream, and I still want to do it. And fast forward, I moved to states. I learned, got into my tech job in Seattle. But unfortunately, and this is the incident that I use in my workshops as well, I met an accident in the first three months of my first job in the states and lost my teeth. So right now you can see, I know the listeners can, but you can see my teeth. Um, they are implants, and it was a very tough time as, you know, a new person in the country with a temporary visa to figure out what's the healthcare situation and what's the legal situation. And I was told, okay, you know, this is between the office and this is between um, where you had the accident. Long story short, I realized that I became two data points. I became for the lawyers I was trying to take help from as my visa, not name, you are a STEM, EAD, S1 kind of visa, but we can't help you truly because you are a temporary resident of the country. The other side was I became a case number, a nine-digit case number for um, the, the department, the city, and they couldn't help me much either because of certain duties. So I realized that even though I am two data points living in two systems, I still felt powerless. I still felt like I don't have enough to do something about it for myself. And it was tough being in a new country when you don't have family. You don't know much, many people. You can't speak for three months. That is when I also realized that if you can't speak in a language and connect with the people around you, it can create more um, depression. It can create more anxieties. It can lead to feeling alienated. And I feel I can speak decent English, but I, w- I started to volunteer a lot in, for all the these communities who uh, whose primary language was not English. And they had a hard time in um, acclimating to this new place. That is what it got me from tech. And eventually I left my job and got into nonprofits. That took me to, to nonprofits. And that is what it took me to um Supporting immigrant communities um, every day since then. So I volunteer every weekend for different communities, and um, so that's kind of became my story. Um, how I been moved from full time jobs to my business this I think I would. I, I suppose we would have those questions. I started to realize we don't we don't do enough with our data. We don't do right with our data, right? We mean you know, we have these data points, and I'm sure we're going to talk about it. But I wanted to to talk about equity, inclusion, justice with data. And to do that, I needed to have an autonomy of a different kind. And that brought me to Namaste Data, my work
1: today. Okay. I don't know what I thought I was going to hear about your journey, but it was certainly not that. And I just want to say what a resilient warrior you are because the thing that just keeps striking me every time you pull out a layer of your story whether it's you know traveling to 10 different living in 10 different places to losing your teeth and not having a voice it's that you have been searching for community you know you're looking for your place and you're trying to find your place in there and i am so glad that you are putting a voice to things that felt inequitable to you Because when you experience something like that, you look at it through a different lens. And I'm so glad we're talking about this today because I want to talk to you about people-driven analytics. You were talking about, you know, I'm just a data point. And how do we go beyond the data points to actually see the human in the back of our data? This is such an important topic for us. One of our, you know, top nine trends of 2023 is human-centric digital transformation. So talk to us a little bit about people-driven analytics and then talk about your work around how you're humanizing data and what opportunities exist right now that for nonprofits to seize.
2: You know, this question, it's, this is, feels like my primary question I want to answer every single day, whether I'm writing a blog or whether I'm talking or whether I'm doing my workshops. It's always a good question. The way I would you know, approach answering that question is we look at numbers in a very binary way just like we see things otherwise in the world. We see it either when it comes to numbers I've seen two kinds of people one who either worship it <laughs> right who say let's collect everything let's have everything in the database and the other are I'm not a data person oh no no I'm not a numbers person so it's either we are scared or we are worship worshiping it. We don't have a balanced relationship with the data. And something that I like saying, um, and this is kind of my, my intentions for myself this year, is technology, advocacy, and mindfulness. Something that I'm realizing this year is data is actually like salt in, in our kitchen. You know, it's part of everything, but it's treated like it's sugar. It's, it's treated like it's the most... Amazing thing right out there. But it's the fundamental thing. <laughs> I love this analogy. Right? I mean, it's, 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 yeah. it's treated like it, the data is the ultimate thing that's going to get us to some amazing, magical outcome. But it is not. Data is an enabler. It's there like a the salt. It exists like salt. Nobody teaches you on a cooking show how to make salt because it's so fundamental. It's part of every dish right out there. The same with the data, it exists, we collect it. We know it's important, but it's not to be treated like it's that magical thing that's the ultimate thing where we start collecting everything. So humanizing, to humanize data, we need to shift our mindset around the word data itself. And once we start doing that, we would have better intentions, better clarity around who are we really serving, our community, our people. That's when it becomes easier to look at data differently, to look at our projects differently that are data driven projects, that are data centered projects, whether it's the donor surveys and donor engagement, whether it's the algorithms that we are working on the AI products. But that is an opportunity once we have our mindset shifted a little bit to have a little bit more intentions, a little bit more purpose with why we are doing what we are doing. Data becomes much more helpful doesn't remain that to be like that sugar and
0: salt. (laughs) I mean, I love your analogy of it because I do think without it, our programs could be bland if I keep continuing with this. But it's like how this adds a depth, you know, how you can make something better and optimize. Like I think everyone's looking for ways to do that. So, I mean, there's a lot of tools coming at us. And the thing that keeps coming up in my feed is AI. I mean, it's everywhere with the apps that are dropping, the chatbots that are dropping, I mean, can you talk a little bit about some of the tenets now that we have this AI that's almost like this human and we are humans trying to interact with it. I mean, can we talk about some of that? And I'd love to tap your ethicist brain too as we kind of lean into how to how to approach it.
2: Absolutely. Um, I love to write about this topic, John. So I will send you and Julie and Becky my list. I, I, I'm a list person. So I will send yes. you my list of the seven truths or tenets around human centricity in AI, but the basic primary idea of human centricity in AI is that the algorithms that we have right now, they are too opaque in the systems. They are wrapped around. They are in a black box kind of a system where we don't understand where a data point, where is it coming from? How was the objective defined? Who analyzed it? Whose voice is centered in that design? And then what are we going to do after... It produces that AI software produces that algorithm produces, and I'm going to give an example of that. I'll send you the tenets. Otherwise, you know, some of these um, algorithm consider an algorithm that will take all your data about your customers, or let's say donors, anybody, and your your audience. It takes that data, and then it segments it and gives you a list of this. These are your top customers. Go talk to them. This is kind of the you know a lot of products that kind of segmentation, right? My question to those kind of products is these algorithms, let's say data point A, B, and C, right? They use those three data points to tell you who are your top uh, customers. But the problem is when we repetitively look at the software again and again for those three uh, kind of same output, every month I'm getting that one list of the top prospects. I automatically learn to only make sure that the data points A, B, and C have the right data values. They always are of good quality. I ignore data points D and E, which might also exist in that realm. I only look for, it becomes becomes a behavior and the culture of the organization to always ensure have good data points underlying A, B, and C because you will get a list of all the best customers you want to talk to. That is the problem because we don't understand where that data is coming from, what other data points exist. I call that algorithmic behavior. It tr- teaches something, it becomes part of our behavior, and we want to serve it. At some point, the algorithms don't support us. We are, in fact, serving the algorithms. So, themselves to, to break that, we need this kind of these tenets where the algorithms are respectful. They are not perpetuating harm. They are not perpetuating any biases. It's not um, opaque. And we, can, we are able to to go beyond those walls and listen, okay, where is this sourcing coming from?
1: That feels really healthy, like that we're asking those questions. Because I think too many of us just have this trust for the algorithms that they're going to be pushing us the right data and that we're using, you know, what's been curated best for us. But I, I agree with you and I have to confess, I don't know that I've ever thought about equity in data.
0: Okay. So I love that we're talking this AI because I think everybody's probably seen the discussion about chat GPT. I downloaded the app this last week and I'm like, you know, trying to stump the AI basically asking questions. I don't even know
1: what that is. So so back it up for people that don't know. Okay.
0: It's this app that um, has a chat function and you can ask it any question in the world. And I was asking it like, Hey, what are some considerations for a fundraising plan? And you ask it something like that, and this gives you seven or eight bullets that seem well-researched, seem like kind of smart, things that I would probably say on me showing up as like a B minus. I probably could tweak, you know, make it like an A paper, but it gives you a really solid start. And so I think when you're talking about what are the sources, it, it hit me because the day I was doing that, I thought... What is the source of truth? You know, what mm-hmm. is behind this? Who is it considering? What blog post maybe pulling from that it's weighing heavier than others? And certainly, what voices are being left out? So, can you kind of apply that? I mean, if we put too much stock in this at this point, what are some of the dangers? And kind of walk us through that.
2: I, I was I was just gonna say, John, can I interject with some dangers? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes,
2: <laughs> do it. <laughs> you know, the, the immediate one is. Uh, Obviously, when we we get to technology like ChatGPT, and and I want to say um, I have used that too, ChatGPT several times. And it's actually fun to play with that technology. But the implications of it is pretty long term. It's good. It's a a good technology right there. But it also, if if we don't have the source of where is it coming from, where is it being sourced from, the question can be, according to whom like you said john according to whom this plan according to whom right (laughs) but that's just like the immediate effect i'm thinking of a little bit of a long-term effect of the technologies like this so for example other few places where chat gpd or technologies like chat gpd um are being used is you can summarize your documents so you can like place text in there, and it can give you summarized bullet points. It can give you summarized hmm. texts, right? That's one um, one of the applications that it states it can do. The other one is, I don't know if you're getting it on your LinkedIn right now, but it says you can use Chat GPT for LinkedIn. So it will give you exact comments that you can leave on people's posts, right? Oh, gosh. Do you see the dangers oh, wow. in these two yeah. things? As much as it is yeah. it is claiming that it can save time in summarizing long documents and giving you exact comments that you can write on people's posts, it's saving you time for some reason. I'm asking why? I'm asking, isn't it taking away our a little bit of that creativity that I would be putting in to read a document, to summarize it, to use my brain power? To, or even for the posts, to to engage with your posts, to go through it, to think about it, to feel like to make a connection with my work or my understanding and then leave a comment. My question is not to eliminate AI or, or my, my challenge is not to eliminate AI or products like ChatGPD. It's mostly to question where we must. Do we really need this application? Just because we can doesn't mean we should. And it definitely doesn't mean we must. So should we? Yeah. And we often in the, in the day-to-day of our lives, we don't get to ask these questions. That is what leads to this algorithmic behavior. Now imagine if this feature rolls out for everybody on LinkedIn, you know, just place the URL of your post and then you will get like good comments and then add it to people. What does it tell about the engagement that happens on the platform? That connection between two humans? There that connection go. between understanding about your story, about your context of the post, and then engaging with it. I have those kind of questions when it comes to AI and in, 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 you know products like those. Are there implication a danger? I would, say, I wouldn't say exactly like a danger, but I I have lack of a better word. I use a product called Grammarly, right? It has it's so Grammarly is a website that can check your grammar. Right? I, I I love Grammarly. I write all my blogs and mm-hmm. I make sure that it goes to an edit. One of the things that I have found, especially in as I'm volunteering with my immigrant communities, so whose first language is not English, is when they run their uh, whole paragraphs or their documents through Grammarly, everything that the product suggests or says, they take it as is. They don't question it, and and, and it's yep. I don't find that an appealing feature, mostly because it's sort of taming down my original tone from where I'm coming from. I don't have to match my tone with yours. We just have to thrive and live and co-live and thrive in the same space. We don't have to match our tones, how we speak and what's my accent and how the words, kind of words I choose. But we need to be able to understand each other so we can do some good together. Products that says, this is what you should do to get a score like 100 on 100, Kind of just pushes you to pick those exact things. They're like those instant gratifications, those instant carrots that you get if you do this. You're gonna get this. And for communities that don't speak yeah. first, uh, who have a hard time or they are still learning in their, you know, they're getting up to it, they take it as the sole truth. These products, like this is what it is saying. I have to take it. It becomes like automatically a sort of a habit to replace your tone with something that a product is suggesting, so that you would be more acceptable in your blogs and in what you say. But I want to I want to push people to not look them those products as the sole truth. You have a voice, a unique tone. Keep that. Grammars can be checked, but the unique sense, the unique point that you want to put put across. It needs to say as if. That is what is the beauty of diversity is.
0: Hey friends, do you want or need a plan to reach your fundraising goals this year? Or maybe you're looking for a playbook for how to show up with more confidence as a nonprofit leader?
1: Take your skills, confidence, and impact through the roof in 2023. Join us inside We Are For Good's professional development experience and community in We Are For Good Pro.
0: So inside, you'll find workshops and live coaching events with Becky and myself, and you'll even see some of your favorite past podcast guests too.
1: Get activated today at weareforgood.com backslash learn. Taking a quick pause from today's episode to thank our sponsor, who also happens to be one of our favorite companies, Virtuous. You know we believe everyone matters, and we've witnessed the greatest philanthropic movements happen when you both see and activate donors at every level. And Virtuous is the platform to help you do just that. It's so much more than a nonprofit CRM. Virtuous helps charities reimagine generosity through responsive fundraising, volunteer management, and online giving. And we love it because this approach builds trust and loyalty through personalized engagement. Sounds like Virtuous might be a fit for your organization? Learn more today at Virtuous.org or follow the link in our show notes.
0: I love these two examples you just talked through, Mina, because I do think there's a lot of validity in using the tools. I mean, I use Grammarly because I never know where to put commas and it. (laughs) will make sure that I put the comma in the right spot. (laughs) Like there's a lot of great things that they can save you time and just people's attention and all that, but using it with intention and not just taking it as gospel, you know, right out of the gate because we'd be be better off Mm -hmm. looking at what is our retention.
1: And I will also tell you, when I wrote We Are For Good's voice style guide, I had Grammarly on and it was lit up (laughs) like a Christmas tree because I had so many things in our writing that were not complete sentences, that were slang. You know, I'm using you know cheeky language and it's like yeah. it, and I'm not going to grammarly it mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. we're for good has a unique voice and and I say that in the context to everyone out there that's like Your organization has unique data points. Mm -hmm. The way that your donors move within your organization, the way they give, the way they communicate, the way they engage with you is going to be nuanced. And that is what AI Mm -hmm. and these algorithms cannot pull, which is nuance. So I know you have this heart for the tiny nonprofit. You work with a lot of small shops. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about if somebody's kind of nodding their head with this, where is a place to start? Mina, where can we start maybe like some advice for nonprofits specifically about moving toward human-centric data this year, or maybe a couple of suggestions of where we can jump from with our own data today to start questioning these ethics?
2: Yeah, I would say two places. It's two things that most organizations can start with. One is, and I'll take an example, start looking internally. So here's an example in our homes if we want to get new furniture right do we just go on a online platform and order like a table and a bed or do we start first with seeing where will we put it what do we have what do we need do we even have the space for that extra couch that i really want to buy so we start internally that's exactly how it is with data before moving looking outside to collect more data before signing up for new platforms and new tools, because it's that one ping every social media channel is saying you should get. Look internally, look into your organization to see where you are, what's your plans, what are your intentions, and from there, decide where there needs to be a change. That's number one. Number two, what humanizes data is people. So... That has to be the priority, 365 days of the year, to be able to listen to your people, to be able to connect with your community. Now, you are not starting with the question, how do I plug in data in this? You're starting with the question, how do I listen to my people? How do I listen to my community? For some organizations, that would mean I need to do some interviews with my donor community, right? For some others, it would mean I need to send out a survey because I don't have that capacity to listen to my community through one on one interviews for 9,000 people. I'm giving an example here again. But it really starts with by looking internally and then having this one intention other than what you come up with, is to listen to your community. Once you have that clarity, it becomes much easier of what we want to do with our data. Like I said, data is the salt. We never start with, okay, what am I going to do with salt today? We think, what are we going to do with tofu? (laughs) It becomes that easier. Mm -hmm.
0: So good. Okay, Mina, I know you do a lot of work alongside the community-centric movement, and I'd love for you to kind of talk about how these two can overlay together. What are some of the data principles that are part of community centricity?
2: You know, when I so I feel like everybody has a definition of or understanding with the word community centric fundraising or community centric for that matter. For me, community centric means person, human. I literally take this pen, this one pen, this is my person and it could be anybody. And I'm talking to this one human and trying to think, work and think and um, deal with my data for this one person, now the complexity is this person. This now for the for the people who are listening to this podcast, <laughs> um, I'm holding a blue sketch pen. Now this the complexity is is this could be this one blue sketch pen that I think is a person. It could be this one other um, black gel pen that I think another person. The the, the equivalency of that is that it's talking about the intersectionality. Our identities are complex and they have these. Um, different components into it. So if I'm looking at data, I can't look at it as like what serves the majority only. If I'm looking at data, I need to be able to differentiate, to look at it from the lens of unique stories. John is different than Becky, is different than Julie, is different than Nina, and our stories are different. And so would be our data points. If we collect some data points, we cannot just say apples to orange, apples to apple comparison, it's an apples to orange comparison. So a lot of my work is about how do you collect these different data points, these unique data points, and then once you have them, how do you, how do you make a, a strategy out of them? How do you compare them? How do you measure them? Chances are most likely, um, I'm going to say don't compare them, <laughs> because we are so prone to comparing stuff. That is what has gotten us to place where we are right now. Compare, measure, give a score. Agreed. We just rinsed and repeated it again and again over the past few years. That's the problem. I'm trying to like not compare where it's not necessary. That is where I come go with the idea of community centric. But when it comes to your question on what are the community centric data principles, the fundamental of it, um, again, I'll send you the list. But the fundamental of it is goes back to this example. If I say 35% of something. The kind of questions that I want people to ask so that they understand they are are, um, placing their community at the center of that data is where is that 35% coming from? Who collected that 35% in a, let's say in a survey, who collected it? Whose voice was there when that 35% was collected? Who was in the room when the analysis that determined this is 35% of so-and-so metric? Who measured it? Who made the decision of how that 35% will be shown out into the world? Who will be in the room who takes the decision of that 35%? It's one single data point, but it has a lot of implications. We really miss the part, where is that data point coming from? And, and here's the funny, thing. oftentimes we think, let's say a, a nonprofit decides, okay, I wanna do a survey. And they say, okay, let me pull these five questions. And they go ahead and do the uh, want to do a survey. The problem is they probably would download a survey that they have done in the past, right? And they would want to take those five questions. Obviously, why should we you know reinvent the wheel? But the problem in that strategy is that we are missing again to recognize whose voice is in the design of that data collection. That survey, the questions that we just pulled, hoping that it would save us time, we missed to question, when was the survey designed the first time? Or who were the people who designed it? Who was it supposed to go out to? So those are the kind of questions. A data is never truly first time born. That's what I'm trying to say. It's kind of in a cycle, and I call that like a data cycle, basically, where we rinse and repeat and use it. So if we can ask some of these fundamental questions around data, I think we would be more closer towards those community centric data principles. Like, where is it coming from? Who, whose voice is it? How is it being measured? Is it going out back to the community from whom we collected this data with the strategy that would be designed out of this? Does it involve the real people in it, or is it just more for our vanity metrics that we have in our system? I think these
1: are just really important questions to check ourselves because if we're relying too heavily on the tech, it's just not going to have that human component that we want it to be. And I just think this is a really helpful conversation around that. But we're an activating community. We like people to Take this data and go do something with it. We want him to take this knowledge. So, we want to get a little tactical here um, and ask you how can we amplify donor engagement through surveys this year? Like, we're in a new fundraising year. You've talked a little bit about the surveys. Talk to us about how we can really ratchet up the way that we interface with our donors to have these meaningful engagement points that move the needle on our relationship.
2: You know, I want to offer two ways to that question. One is, if a nonprofit is listening to this podcast, I would recommend start with sending out the survey to your entire constituent list. You can use your survey to segment it using a question on who's responding to a survey and you can use your, you know, those hide and show logic to only show a, per, a person their applicable questions, but send it out to the entire constituent list. I have seen so often in my work of this consulting that organizations have, uh, nonprofits have their predetermined list. Like, I want to send the survey to these hundred people because um, their capacities, maybe their capacities are above so-and-so range, or they have given, we have Predefined or predetermined that this is the list of people who would be good for the survey. I want to change that idea. I want to I want to make nonprofits believe that everybody who is in their realm is their friend. Is there a potential supporter? Is there a, whether they are a donor already, whether they are a, a volunteer, whether they are a um, past donor or a past um, community member? They are part of your community. So send out the survey. Keeping a trust that you can get something super enriching when you hear back from them. There could be someone who lost connection with you for a few years and now you get to know that they are ready to, you know, back to volunteer with you or ready to give, give, um, donate to your cause. Sending out to the entire list. That's number one. And number two, when you have done a survey, take the time to go through the results, not just question by question, but also seeing like in a more, um, comparing it with the data that you already have to see what is the full story. A person who just responded to one survey could be coming with um, their nuances of that day when they're responding to the survey, but you also have some history on them in your database. So pull those numbers and compare it with the survey results just to create a fuller picture about that. So, so for all in our office listening to this, okay, send it to the entire list and to look at the data when you get back um, and don't forget to send thank you. most not, you know, to thank you for taking the time to respond to a survey. That's a please, place I've seen um we most often miss. so sending thank you is very important. Another engagement point.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That was so helpful. And we'll drop up, you know, some of these lists you've been dropping in the show notes to make it super helpful. But I know you've spent you know time in the nonprofit space. You've had this really incredible life. I don't know if you would take us back. You know, we love story. We love how philanthropy can kind of hit us in a certain way in our life and really stick with us. I wonder if you'd share a moment of your journey where you really saw the power of philanthropy at work. I, you
2: know, I had this uh, ton of examples in my mind. I have, still so have them. And when I got this question, but I want to say, <laughs> I want to share one specific moment that did not happen too far, you know, long ago. It, it happened probably at some point last year. I think that's just going to stick with me for the rest of my life. And I'm going to share that moment. So a lot of the work, when I say community-centric data, community-centric algorithms, um, I am really looking for the word community in there with the people I'm working with, for the nonprofits I'm working with. It's if you have talked, if you have heard about any of these like this donor centric understanding, donor centric fundraising, and then this this sort of a battle between donor centric fundraising, community centric fundraising. I'm not getting into that. My point is when I use the word community, I truly mean that the donors are part of that community already. I want to see that happening. I want to see that in the language. I want to see that when I hear, but I don't, but I'm not super lucky to hear that so often. Last year. I had an engagement where I was working with this organization out of Midwest and I was talking to the ED for the first time. She was giving me the context of her organization. Um, we were talking about doing some sort of a data collection assessment, like what are the sources they're collecting data from. And I asked her, OK, tell me um, who are your stakeholders and tell me who are the people who get get your data collection surveys and such. And she said, OK, I have mentors I have volunteers, I have the people who attend the events, then I think I have the community. And then she took a pause. And then I said, and donors? And she said, oh my gosh, Mina, I forgot. Donors, yes, obviously, I just considered them part of the community. And that was the moment that I felt like somebody really saw me. Like I thought this never could happen that a person would forget the word itself. She was not forgetting anybody from her donor community. She considered them part of the word community. And it was so beautiful because she listed 10 different types of volunteering roles and placed everybody else under the word community. It was beautiful. And I think that is what I am working towards. I could see for the first time what would a successful conversation of doing this work would feel like over the years when we don't hang up on the words donor and community. We just know it's about the people, the human, the person who is willing to take a chance on the cause and make sure the world gets better one day at a time. And that was beautiful for me. That's amazing.
1: And I can only imagine that somebody having that kind of a mindset translates positively in every different way culturally You know, when you're already thinking in that way, it's easier to dig into the data with that kind of a mindset. It's easier to create intentional one-on-one engagement points. So that's a great story. I'm I'm so glad that happened with you in the room because no one would have appreciated it more than you, Mina. Thank you. So, you know, we end all of our conversations with a one good thing. And I'm wondering what your one good thing would be that you'd offer to our community today. Could be a hack or a quote. What would you like to leave us with?
2: I'm going to leave you with two things. Of course. (laughs) Okay. Two things. Here are my two things. I'm going to leave you with what I do when I have my bad days. And it's, you know, we all have our bad days and it's unavoidable, inevitable. And we do. So I have gotten into this habit of, just so you know, I'm also a certified life coach. That's where I'm bringing all my humanizing things with data. Amazing. So I have gotten into the habit of to, to to do two things when I have bad days. One is there is one particular song um, from India that I really love. It's about immigrants and I love it. And it just reminds me of my home. It just reminds me of my roots. And I love On the Bad Days because it just tells me to remember my roots. I never want to forget where I'm coming from, where I grew up, what I'm bringing. Not a single day. And the bad days gives me a, another chance to remember, look where you came from. You have made a progress. You have made an impact. It doesn't feel at this moment. But look where you came from. Your roots are still there, strong in standing. So that's my one that I want to give. Find your song or find your thing that can make you feel connected back to your roots. Second is if I'm having a, ha- um, a bad day, I do deliberately something good like I'm, I'm trying to make this as a habit so if, if i would either um you know give to a cause that i believe in or i would volunteer for a skills-based project of my three hours if i'm having a hard day there i'm volunteering for a three-hour data analysis for a nonprofit locally just so i feel like this becomes like a habit that bad days do not end with something bad. It can lead to something good. I'm just not able to see the goodness today in that moment, and that's okay. But I am going to in the next course of set of days. I just have to believe. I'm, I'm trying to bring back that belief in those bad days. So I'm going to leave you with those two
0: things. Nina, I mean, this is why at the intro, we're like, you're our people. You know, you get the data side of the house, which we appreciate, but you're here for... humans. You're here for community and it just has oozed through this conversation. So, you know, people are going to want to connect with you and your work. I wonder if you would just share just the ways you show up and the services you offer and how people can find you online.
2: Absolutely. I am available on LinkedIn and I'm trying to build an Instagram profile, but it's so tough <laughs> to move into a different <laughs> social media. <laughs> um, but people can definitely reach out to me on LinkedIn or on my website. My website address is easy, namaste, Data N-A-M-A-S-T-E-D-A-T-A dot O-R-G. Namaste is the way we greet in India and data is my love professionally. So I wanted to meet my two loves, personal and professional, and the kind of things that I do for the nonprofits these days is I help in donor surveys and or all forms of surveys. I help in doing data collection assessments. So figuring out if you are doing right with your data collection sources. And I do a lot of workshops on how can you advance equity through data collection and visualizations, which is basically a nonprofit party, staff party. We get together and do a workshop. So those are the kind of things that I do.
1: Well, thank you for all of that. Please go check out Mina's website. I'm going to throw a little plug in there. You've got three popular freebies on there. So if you want to get the seven tenets of human-centric AI, 10 community-centric data principles, or how I started with data equity and fundraising Um, go check those out and please just follow her as a thought leader because we just really lean into what Mina says on data equity on LinkedIn. And it's a great place to just kind of rewire yourself here in the new year to bake everything that we do in equity. So thank you, Mina. Thank you for bringing in your story and your culture and just rooting for you in all things, my friend.
0: So grateful. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much.
2: One more thing. If you loved what you heard today, would you mind leaving us a podcast rating and review? It means the world to us and your support helps more people find our community. Thanks, friends. I'm our producer, Julie Comfer, and our theme song is Sunray by Remy Borsboom.